three, two, one. This is Mike Edelhart, and I'm here with another edition of Inception, our podcast about beginnings, the beginnings of companies, of careers, of uh, new areas of science, which is something we'll be talking about today, and sometimes even a little glimpse of the future. And with me today is Jordan Miller uh, from Volumetric. And I'm in San Francisco today where I'm uh, hunkered down and you are in Texas? Yeah, I'm back in uh, Houston, Texas, where we're based. This is one of those cases where we think what you're doing is just fascinating, but it might be something that requires a little bit of explanation for those that are listening. So why don't we walk through just what it is you guys are doing down there? So at Volumetric, the mission of our company is to make replacement organs for people made from their own cells. And we're using 3D printing to address that goal. The challenge here is really the limit of the availability of donated organs for people that are in need. There are over 100,000 people on the organ donation wait list, and there's actually tens of millions of people more than that, that are in need or could medically benefit from a ready supply of organs. You know, in terms of like, what can we do today to address this challenge? The shortest term solution is we just need more people to register to be organ donors. That's something that's very important that I want to make sure is is clear to the audience is that um, we absolutely need people to do that in the short term. And then, you know, in, in the longer term, the opportunity is also to think about generating a replacement organ for a patient made from their own cells. So the people on the organ donation waitlist, a lot of times they're really waiting for someone to die so that they can live. It's a very heart-wrenching situation. Um, people are dying every day with, because of a lack of, of organ availability. I got into this field about 20 years ago, starting to understand more about the biomaterials. So these are materials that scientists have shown can be compatible with living human cells and possibly compatible with implantation in the body. So we know from uh, work done in the 80s, there was a professor at MIT, Yanni Yanas, who showed that he could take cow skin, process it into a collagen scaffold, a collagen sponge-like scaffold, and apply it to burn victims. That, you know, if you get burns over more than half of your body, there's not enough other skin to take to heal that burn. His technology was really transformative. And so if you think about that was done in the 80s and it's still being used today and we have a lot of knowledge about materials that can interface with cells, interface with the body. So if we can take cow skin and make artificial human skin. Why can't we make a liver? Why can't we make lungs? Why can't we make some of the more complicated organs in our body? That's been really a big challenge to think about. It's remained a challenge since then. And it's something that we are actively working on at Volumetric. And so what is the challenge to get to the other organs? Well, the so-called solid organs in our body, the liver, the kidney, the pancreas, the lungs, these organs are incredibly complicated in architecture. And that is what's been missing from this technology, is the ability to take biomaterials, put them in the architecture that mimics the organs, and be able to make them function. Specifically, that, that architecture is the blood vessels. If you think about actually the design of a city, you have regions where people live, but you have to have the roadways in a city. 
if you don't have any roadways in a city, you don't have a way to get nutrients in to where the residents are and you can't take the waste out. It is the same challenge with making a large volume of tissue. The volumetric organs is a better word for our, our organs inside the body. Um, they're not solid organs, actually, mostly, more, almost half of them in some cases are liquid, are the fluidic conduits that we have blood and we have lymphatics and we have bile and we have other fluids that flow through them that sustain the organ. And the capacity to make that architecture, we believe, will be transformative in terms of our ability to make a replacement organ function. It's really pretty remarkable. So I think you know, for folks that are listening and, and watching here, the mental picture might be more something that acts like a liver than something that necessarily looks like a liver. That if you think about taking a pile of liver cells and just making more of them, that's a pile of liver cells. It's not a liver. What a liver is from the point of view of a body that functions, as you say, is it's an organ that takes in certain materials, certain things happen to them, it outputs certain materials, and if you have a compatible biological uh, structure that does that, you've got a liver. And that's really what you guys do. You're really looking at the functionality of the organ itself. So you can't just grab somebody's liver cells and oof, have this. So uh, how does that actually happen? So you're exactly right there. So in our liver, we all have the same major arteries going in and major veins going, coming out. We do think about it strictly from an engineering perspective. There's still a lot of biology that is not fully known, and that makes it a very exciting field to be in. But also the field of bioengineering is applying engineering principles to biology. So we can think about if we could make a blood vessel structure that at least mimics the overall uh, character of that tree-like network. So the blood vessels in our bodies, in our organs, they do look like tree structures. You have major trunks that come in that branch off into many smaller branches and those get all the way down to the capillary level. And if you remember, um, those of you who remember uh, biology from high school, right, then those capillaries drain back into the veins and that goes back to the heart and it goes around the cycle again. So that circulatory system, the organization of that, the structures inside our body are really the most complicated structures that we know of in, in the known universe. And this makes it an incredibly complicated challenge to engineer or manufacture. There's, lots, there's been a lot of microscopy over the last 100 or so years looking at how the organs are laid out. What are those design principles we can derive from images of slices of the organs in our body? So we can understand what size of vessels we have, how often do they branch, what angle do they branch at, uh, how many sub-branches do they have? How many generations of branching is it all the way down to the capillary level? In the lung, it's 22, maybe 23 levels, uh, generations of branching. And we can put that into algorithms that will then generate on the computer new blueprints that roughly follow those design principles. And that's been a very exciting area. We do believe, because we do have differential microvasculature between people, and we also know that organs are rejected not because of vascular architecture, but because of biochemistry, biochemical differences between donors. This also suggests that more than one architectural solution would be possible to make an artificial or replacement organ. 
And so the idea here is, can we make a blood vessel architecture that is dense enough to keep a large volume of cells alive? It, let's go down that pathway, right? If you make it mostly vessels, you'll keep all the cells alive, but there won't be many cells there to do the work of the organ. In contrast, if you have no vessels or you have too few vessels, then you'll have some cells there, but a lot of them will be dead because they won't be able to get the oxygen that they need. So there's actually really this, this trade-off, this balance, this Goldilocks zone that we're looking for that has enough vasculature to keep all the cells alive, but also has enough room for those cellular residents to take root and to build the organ function that we need. That's remarkable. And the idea of sort of coming up with a universal replacement part, if you want to call it that. But my sense or my recollection is that as you go from the computer image to the actual bio-printed image, that there's some pretty curious aspects to the process that, that you went through all kinds of back and forth about how to do that and found the ultimate mechanism for identifying which parts the printer should focus on, basically in the grocery store, right? <laughs> That's right. So I'll get to that in a minute. But what we're using is, is a technology called photolithography. So photolithography, it's a long word. It just means, you know, uh, writing structure with light. That's almost literally what it means. Actually, the oldest kind of 3D printing is photolithography. You take a liquid that is sensitive to light. Um, so you can think about blue light or UV light or some of these other light sources that are very bright. They carry a lot of energy per photon and those can start a reaction. So if you shine a point of light into this uh, light-sensitive liquid, you'll get a point of matter solidified, and you can do that over and over again to build up an object. What we have been using is a modified version of this. This is called uh, projection photolithography or projection stereolithography. This is, uh, we're shining, instead of a point of light, we're shining millions of points of light into this light-sensitive liquid at the same time. And we're using a projector, just like you would in a home theater system or at a movie theater. You have, uh, in fact, millions of points of light shining out of that projector. We can focus that into the vat of our light-sensitive liquid, and we can solidify millions of points of light in about five seconds. But there was a challenge, so we didn't invent projection photolithography. What we've invented is a modified form of those biomaterials that can work under these conditions. So we have the, the 3D printing technology that has been working very well with plastics for several decades. And then we have the biomaterials considerations. These are um, natural, naturally derived or totally synthetic materials that are compatible with human cells. And we need to use, as a solvent, we need to use water. Our bodies are mostly made of water. We need to design a biomaterial liquid pre-gel material that actually is mostly water and that can be solidified to yield a gel. It has the consistency of gelatin and it has a high water content just like our tissues and our organs. And so the idea is if we could have a material that we could cross-link with the photopolymerization, then we could make an incredibly complicated structure. And the idea is that structure could underlie the function. So the challenge was uh, we want to shine light into this liquid material. It's mostly water. It's usually actually mostly totally transparent. And so if you think about a big column of fluid or a big volume of fluid, you shine light into it, 
the whole thing could solidify. That would be very good if you want to make a mold of something. But we actually only want to solidify a very thin layer. So we have that projected light coming in one XY plane. And uh, that's coming in, we look from, from the bottom, it's coming from the bottom and we have the vat here. You want to prevent it from getting very deep in the Z direction. And so if our image is giving us our XY, how do we prevent the light from going super deep into that light sensitive liquid? And that's actually where the, the grocery store came in. So most of the photo absorbers that have been used to date have been designed for plastics. So they weren't designed with bio biology in mind. They are not biocompatible. In fact, most of the photo absorbers that have been used before are carcinogenic, which means they, they cause cancer or they're totally toxic and they'll kill the cells that would be there. So we were looking and thinking about this process and realized that uh, photo absorbers that are dissolvable in water, actually food colorings are an incredible additive that we could use. We thought about that. I went to the drugstore, got some, we brought it to the lab and it worked immediately. So that was very exciting. Um, that helped us see the full potential. We can just add this water soluble food coloring into the light sensitive liquid that gives us our Z resolution in a 3D printing system that has allowed us to make these tissues that have unprecedented complexity. And that complexity is really underlying a lot of the tissue function that we wanted to see and that as we're continuing to see as we progress to whole organs. Sometimes the simplest things have the most profound impacts. So where are you all in this now? So you described something pretty incredible. Uh, where are you related to the use of this to actually help people? So we published a paper last year in Science um, together with our collaborators at University of Washington, uh, Kelly Stevens, and a bunch of other professors where we showed that actually the tissues that we made, we could put hepatocytes, these are liver-derived cells, these are the functioning liver cells from the liver, put them in these tissues, implant them into mice, and we showed that they would survive for several weeks and in some cases actually have that liver-specific function. So this has been very exciting to show that not only do we have the structure, the complexity from the design, we've taken it all the way through into animal studies and shown that utility. And so the challenge now is to go larger size. We want to make larger tissues, do them in, in larger animal studies and get them into sort of pre-human clinical trials. So we want to do uh, get the data that we need that will enable us to understand how functional would this be inside of a human. So in your view, when might this come to people? Well, I'm optimistic, but it also will be probably on, on the scale of a couple more years. So we need to validate the technology in the shorter term. Um, this would be these larger tissues that we want to do inside of larger animals. So if you think about um, something the size of a, a pig, a pig is a very good animal model that models organ transplantation in humans. Those types of studies will take uh, months, potentially one or two years. Those are studies we're raising money to be able to do right now. In the meantime, while we're raising that money, we're, we're instantiating the technology to go a couple orders of magnitude in, of increased complexity. And that's gonna enable us to get the data that we need to go start talking to the FDA. Really, really fascinating. We could do this all day, but I'd love to come back a year from now and maybe two years from now and find out how things are going. Great to have a chance to talk to you. Sounds great. Thanks, Mike. Hope you to see you face-to-face -face here soon. Yeah.